All right, good morning, church. Uh, it's a blessing to be with you again this morning, and for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will. I'm the pastor here, and listen, if you're visiting us here, we are so glad that you decided to check us out. We don't know what the reason for you being here is, but if whatever, whatever brought you here, we are so glad that you are here, and I really hope I get a chance to connect with you before you leave uh, this morning. Now, this morning, as you can tell by the screen behind me, we are continuing our series entitled Living Hope, Living Hope. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open to First Peter, and uh, if you're new to Bible, then what I want you to do is I want you to go to the end of your Bibles, uh, to the book of Revelation, and then move left, and you will run into the book of First Peter, all right? And so this morning, we're going to be looking at First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And I'm going to have the passage on here on the screen behind me. I'm going to read here from my Bible. And here's what it says in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And for those of you who are perceptive and were here uh, on week three of Tri Village's opening, you actually know that this is a passage we looked at, okay? Now, the sermon is slightly different, but it's actually a passage we looked at, and uh, I'm excited to jump into it again this morning. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look at this passage under three headings. And what Peter is doing in this passage is he is telling us who we are, and then after he tells us who we are, then he tells us what we should do about it. So he gives us our identity, and then he says, these are the implications. If this identity is true, then these are the implications that now must be lived out by you if this is really who you are, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to ask and answer three questions um, concerning this passage. The first question that we're going to ask and answer is, what is our identity? What is our identity? The second question that we're going to ask and answer this morning is, what is our purpose? And then the third and final question is, what is our motivation? Okay, so what is our identity, what is our purpose, and what is our motivation? So let's begin by answering the first question, which is, what is our identity? And to answer that question, I want to read again verse 9. Look what Peter says in verse 9. He says, but you, he's speaking to the church, the people who know God. So he's not talking to people in general. He's speaking to people who have placed their faith in Jesus. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And so that question, well, the question that we're answering is, what is our identity? Peter answers that question with four answers. He has four answers to the one question, okay? And what we're going to do for the first few minutes of this message is we are going to look at each one of the identities that Peter uses to describe us. And, and this first point is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning just because there's so much content here, um, and then we'll, we won't spend as much time in the final two questions. So the question is, what is our identity? And he says, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So let's, let's work our way through all these identities. The first one, he says, is that we are a chosen people. We are a chosen people. Now, for those of you who were here a few weeks ago, when we were looking at election, being God's elect, that's actually the same word that he's using here again. It's the same exact word. He brings up the word up again, and he says, you are God's chosen people. So, so, so for those of you who weren't here, here's what the word chosen means. The word chosen means to be selected. It means to be picked out of a bunch. There's a lot of people and you get picked out, okay? It can actually mean, and this can be a bit controversial, but it can actually mean to be someone's favorite. That's what the word chosen means. Now, here's the thing, though. The problem with the word chosen is that when you, when you read it on the surface, it can seem very exclusive, right? 
It can seem very exclusive. And, and maybe you're sitting here today and you're still considering the things of Christianity. Like you're still not really sure if God is for you or not. But then you read verses like that and it gets you angry. And you're like, you see, that's exactly the reason why I don't want to be a Christian. That's exactly the reason why I don't want to be a Christ follower because Christ followers think they're so special and so high and mighty and they are the chosen people of God. That's exactly the reason why I want nothing to do with this religion or this faith. But here's what's interesting. And this is something that I heard from a, a, a pastor that died a long time ago. Here, here's what he said. He said, it says in the passage, it says, we are God's chosen people, not God's choice people. Okay? There's a difference between being chosen and being choice. You see, when you go to the, the grocery store and you buy choice meat, you're, you're, you're buying the best meat available. That's what choice means. It doesn't say choice people. It means, it says chosen people. Okay? So, so here's what this means. The reason why you guys, you, are, you and I are chosen is not because we're special. It's not because we bring anything to the table. It's not because God is impressed by us. We're not choice people. We are chosen people. In other words, there's nothing that we bring to the table. As a matter of fact, in Corinthians, Paul says that God chose the foolish things in the world to, to put to shame the things that are wise. He, he chose the nobodies in order to put the, to shame the somebodies. And so if you're a Christian, what you're actually admitting is that you're a nobody. And later he actually says he, he takes the, the, the nothing, he takes the zeros in the world to put to shame the, 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 thing, the people that are something. And so if you're a Christian, you are a nobody, you are foolish, and you are nothing. Right? So, so the word chosen there shouldn't make us prideful. It should actually humble us more than any other doctrine in Scripture. Because to be a believer, you have to admit that you, could, you did nothing to get it, and it was given to you by grace. So what can seem very uh, uh, prideful or very exclusive on the surface is actually a very humbling doctrine, because we're not choice people, we are chosen people. Wow, that's an awesome drink, so I don't know who that is, but, um, but, uh, uh, but, we, are, but we are chosen, right? We are chosen people. Now, that's how let's do it, all right. So, okay, keeps going. So, look, uh, but here's, here's what's interesting about that phrase. And this is one of the things that I came across this week that I found really interesting. When, when we look at Scripture, or we even look at the way Christians are viewed in society, and, and I, one, of the, one of the pastors I listened to this week, he brought this up, and I thought it was just so insightful. Here's what he said. He said, a lot of Christians are surprised when they find people of other religions that are better than them in certain things. So, so Christians, right, are surprised when they find Hindus who are more generous than them. Christians are surprised when they find Muslims who are more devout than, devout, devoted than them. Christians are surprised when they find atheists who are, are more aware of social issues and more, more, more engaged with the poor than they are, right? We, Christians are surprised by that. And actually, the world is surprised by that, too. But here's why we shouldn't be surprised that there are people that are better than us at certain things in the world. Because to be a Christian, you're not saying you're the best at everything. To be a Christian, you're saying you're the worst at everything. So, of course, there's, there's Hindus that are better than you at giving. And, of course, there are atheists that are better than you in serving the poor. Because to be a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're the best of the best. It means you're the worst of the worst. So we shouldn't be shocked when we find people that are better than us in other religions at certain things. Now, it doesn't mean that's an excuse. It doesn't mean that we should not grow in those areas, but we should not be surprised when a coworker, your coworker gives more money to a nonprofit than you do your, to your church, even though they don't go to church. Don't be surprised by that. Because to be a Christian doesn't mean you're the best. It means you're the worst. Okay? That's what the word chosen there means. But the other part I want you to see there in that identity is the word people. And the reason why the word people there is so important is because the word people there, it actually means ethnicity. See, people in, in, in English, you can't really, you don't really get the translation, but, but in, in, in the, people, the word people there, it means race. It means ethnicity. So here's why this is so important. Peter, remember, he's talking, I brought this up a few weeks ago, but he's not talking just to Jewish people. Peter is talking to Gentiles as well. And then all of a sudden, he talks to these people who are from a totally different walks of life, completely different ethnicities, completely different races. And Peter says, he tells these people, he says, hey, listen, you are a chosen race. So he's talking to all these races, plural. And then he says, now in God, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen ethnicity. This is really interesting. And you could read right past it if, if you're not looking at the original language. What he's saying is that when we come to Jesus, we are given a new race. 
So the old race isn't thrown away. We still are Asian. We still, we're still black. We're still Hispanic. We're still Italian, right? So the, 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 the old race isn't gone, but now we are part of another race. We are part of a different race. And that phrase chosen race can sound almost Nazi-ish, right? Chosen race, isn't that exactly what caused, you know, the Holocaust? But instead of it making us prideful, it should actually make us humble if we really understand what God is saying here. A lot of you might not know this, but I am currently, uh, this semester I started seminary, and so I'm taking two classes of seminary, and I'm going to be taking two classes pretty much every semester and in the summer for the next two years. And uh, I'm in a class uh, uh, on anthropology. It's the study of anthropology with a focus on how does the study of human beings affect ministry. And so we, we, we were writing, I had to write this essay, and one, part of our assignment was to read the essays of our classmates and to respond to their essays. And so there's a, there's a girl, there's a lady who's in my class, and she is a Korean-American. And she was talking about how her culture had influenced her growing up. And she said that her parents were first-generation Koreans and that she was brought here. And actually, you know, she was born here. And so she's born here and she's a Korean-American. She said that one of the challenges that she had growing up, even though she grew up in the church, is that her parents, even with, without even noticing, her parents wanted her to be Korean before she was a Christian. So she grew up knowing she was a Christian, but, but it, the way she put it is, she's like, I was a Korean who happened to be a Christian instead of a Christian who happened to be Korean. And she said, my culture, my race had more uh, uh, effect on me than my faith. And she said, that was a struggle for me until I, once I got to middle school and I finally placed my faith in Jesus and it was a personal relationship that my faith started to define me more than my race. And so I, I chose her essay to respond to because I could, I, I could relate to that. You see, growing up, I, uh, my parents are immigrants, and so my dad's Cuban, my mom's Puerto Rican, they got here, and so when they arrived, I, I, that one of the things that I was born with was with a, I was very prideful, very, very proud of where I was from. And so for years, people would find out my race way before they found out other things. When I became a Christian, though, it was this weird transition where I, I had to figure out, am I, a, am I a Hispanic who happens to be Christian, or am I a Christian who happens to be Hispanic? And after I walked with Jesus for a while, I realized that it was the latter. I had to allow my Christianity to define me. So in other words, my nationality explains me, but my Christianity defines me. That's where we have to get to. And the only way that we're actually going to experience racial reconciliation in this nation is if we experience gospel reconciliation. Okay, I have to be reconciled vertically to God before I can ever hope to be reconciled horizontally to my neighbors. That's the only place we're ever going to find racial reconciliation. And Jesus came to make a chosen race, a brand new ethnicity. And again, you don't, you don't throw away who you were. He wants you to stay who you were. But now you, it's like you have one foot in this world and one foot in this world. But if I had to choose, I have to choose my faith. If, if it's between who I, my, my nationality, my race, and my, this, this new race, the second race that I have been given, this is the one that has to define me. This is the one that has to determine how I live. Okay. So the first identity that we're given here is we are described as chosen people. The second one, he says, we are also a royal priesthood. Now, for us, that doesn't really mean much. But, but in those days, for, for, for anyone who was reading this, Peter's letter, and anyone who came before the New Testament, all the Jews that came before the New Testament, this would have been blasphemous. This would have been blasphemous. Because th this is a, that, that phrase, royal priesthood, so a kingly priest, is, is, was was. Not, it didn't happen in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the only person in the Old Testament that was a king and a priest was this mysterious guy named Melchizedek. And what a lot of scholars say is that that was Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus anyways. So, so, so the reality is that was never something that was put together. A royal priesthood, a king that was a priest. Actually, in the Old Testament, there's a story where King Saul tries to go make a sacrifice. He's a king who tries to act like a priest, and he gets in trouble for it because kings and priests were totally different people. Those offices were never one and the same. You are never both, okay? So one of the identities that we are given once we place our faith in Jesus is we are kings, but we are also priests. And what's interesting about the Old Testament is that both of those offices were extremely rare. It was a very exclusive class, both of them. And here's why it was exclusive. Because there were 12 tribes of Israel and only one tribe can be priests. The, the tribe of Levi was the only tribe that priests can come from. So if you were born and you were part of, of, of Naphtali or Asher or the tribe of, of Benjamin, you knew from the day you were born you weren't going to be a priest because only people who were from the tribe of Levi can be priests. 
right? So that's a very exclusive role that only people in that tribe could have, right? And only the men in that tribe can do it. So it's even more exclusive. And then if you look at, if, if you think being a priest was exclusive, at least there was thousands and thousands of Levites, but being a king was even, less, was even more exclusive. There's only a handful of kings throughout the whole, all of the Israelite and history of Judah and Israel. And so both of these roles were extremely, extremely exclusive. And what the, king, what the king would do is the king would stand with his face toward his people and he would represent God to his people. What the priest would do is the priest would turn his back to his, the people and he would represent the people to God. So the king would represent God to the people. The priest would represent the people to God. But two very exclusive roles that no Jew in their right mind would ever even try to claim one of them, let alone both of them. And now in Jesus, we are royal priests. We are kingly priests, according to the passage. Now, the reason why that's so important and the reason why I don't want us to just skip past that is because if that's true, then that means in Jesus, we have authority that we've never had before because we are kings. But on the other hand, we have access that we never had before because we are priests. We have both authority and access that was not available to us before Jesus arrived or before Jesus came into our lives. See, in, in Scripture, it says that we are, the reason why we have authority is because we are seated in heavenly places with Jesus. We are more than conquerors as a result of the gospel. That's where our authority comes from. But then we are also, we have access that we've never had because in Hebrews, it says now we can enter into God's presence. We can go into behind the curtain now because the, the curtain has been torn. See, before, in the Old Testament, only one person can go into the Holy of Holies, but on, on the day that Jesus died, the curtain was torn, and so now all of us can step into God's presence. The place that only one man can go once a year, now all of us can go into. That's incredible access that we are given now as a result of the gospel. And it, it would have been mind-blowing for an Old Testament Jew to hear that we now had this type of access to God. They'd have been like, What? No way. Both of those things, you're a king and you're a king and a priest now? There's no way. And yet that's exactly what we've been given. Now here's what this means. If this is true that we are royal priests, that we are royal priesthood, one of the things that happened in the church, you know, at the beginning of the early church, everyone understood this doctrine and they lived it out. People went out and they lived as priests. Here's what's really interesting about the early church. The early church in the book of Acts, there are 40 recorded miracles. And 39 of them happened outside the church. You know why? You know why the church grew in the book of Acts? It didn't grow because of good preaching. It didn't grow because of good worship. It didn't grow because of, they had amazing children programs. The book of, in the book of Acts, the reason why the early church grew is because people took this doctrine seriously. They saw themselves as God's priests. They saw themselves as God's royalty, as kings with the authority and the access to go and do the work of the ministry. That's why the church grew. And I think the reason why the church isn't growing today is because we no longer are paying attention to that doctrine. We have totally ignored that doctrine. And what we say now is that the people who do, the, the people who, the priest, the person who does the work is the pastor that I pay to do it on Sunday morning. Me, I don't do anything. And actually, that's, that's one of the things that happened when the Catholic Church came out of the early church. One of the things that the Catholic Church did through popes and through priests is they, they started to create a gap between the clergy and the laity. And they thought, oh, you guys are the, the, the simple folk and we're better than you. You stay there, we'll stay here. And we're the ones that do the work and you come and just applaud us as we do the work for you. And one of the things that Martin Luther, not the black Martin Luther, but the German Martin Luther, uh, when, when he showed up on the scene, a lot, of, you know, a lot of people talk about what he did as far as, you know, bringing back, you know, justification by faith. But one of the things that Luther brought up too, that brought back that a lot of people didn't know, is he brought back this whole concept of the priesthood of believers. He showed up and said, no, 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 it's not the priests that do the work, it's all of us that do the work. Because if the Bible is true, that means that all of us are priests and all of us are to carry out the mission of God. You see, for several centuries in the church, it was all come and see. Oh, you want to know God? Come and see. and Come here and you'll see him. Once Luther showed up and Calvin showed up, they changed the paradigm. Instead of come and see, it became go and tell. We need to go and tell because we are God's priests. That's, what, that was so, that's, that's exactly what was so strange about the early church. Because the early church 
was, was so different from the pagans and the Romans and, and, and even the Jews because once Christians started showing up, as a matter of fact, what historians say is that a lot of the Romans who lived in that day, they actually thought the Christians were, were atheists. And the reason why they thought they were atheists is because they didn't have any temples, they didn't have any priests, and they didn't have any sacrifices. So a Roman or a Greek would go up to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the Christians and say, hey, hey, uh, uh, where's your temple? Oh, I'm God's temple. What? Okay, well, that's fine, but wh- where's your priest? No, I'm God's priest. What? Well, where's your sacrifice? Oh, well, I am to be a living sacrifice. Wait, 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 wait. What? No other religion had ever been there. Every other religion had a priest, a temple, and a sacrifice. And then Christians show up, and they're all three. And the reason why they're all three Christians, the reason why we are God's temple, God's priest, God's sacrifice is because we are united with Jesus, and Jesus is God's temple, God's priest, God's sacrifice. So in our unity with him, we become the things that he is. And so Romans back then literally thought Christians were atheists. There's no way you believe in God. You have no place where you worship. You have no sacrifices that you offer. And you have no priest to represent you. There's no way that you actually believe in God. But we do. You are God's priesthood. Okay? The week at Tri-Village is just as important as the weekend. God doesn't just work Sunday 10 through 12. God works in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood. You are God's priest. That's why in Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says that God has given us all the leaders. He's given us the prophets and the, the, the pastors and the preachers. He's given us all these people in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to send you out equipped so that you do the work of the ministry, not me. Okay? So we are chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. So then the third thing he says, he says that we are a holy nation. We are a holy nation. And for those of you who were here last week, we, we talked for a good 55 minutes, <laughs> looking at the time now that I went back and looked, a good 55 minutes on the subject of holiness. So I don't want to spend too much time on that. But what I want to do just briefly, for those of you who weren't here, is I just want, I want to give you a definition of what holiness actually means. Here's what holiness actually means. When we think of holiness, right, a lot of times in, in our culture, holiness is this derogatory statement. It's, it's almost a swear word when you bring up holy, right? Like, oh, holy, oh, yep, yep. Yep, holy, the holy ones, holier than thou. And when we, even Christians fall into this trap. When we hear the word holy, we think of moral behavior. We think of good works. We think of being pure and being perfect. That's what we think of when we think of being holy. Now, even though holiness is not less than that, but it's much more than that. And what we learned last week is that what holiness actually means is holiness means to be set apart. Holiness means to be different, to be distinct, to be consecrated unto God, to be set apart for the purposes and the uses of God. That's what holiness actually means, okay? But what happens is a lot of times we as Christians, we don't really know how to balance because we are terrible at balancing things. So when we approach holiness, there are two extremes. There are two groups of people. There are the people who totally isolate themselves. And then there's the people who totally assimilate. Those are the two extremes when it comes to holiness. The people who are like, oh, you want me to be holy? Okay, I'm going to go isolate myself. I'm going to go live in a monastery and totally remove myself and judge people from a distance and come out every so often and throw a gospel grenade. Like, I'm going to throw a gospel grenade, wait for it to explode. Okay, let me run back to my bunker and I'll see you in two years. So there's a one extreme when it comes to holiness is the people who isolate and then the other extreme are the people who assimilate, are the people who, who do, well, I, I have to be all things to all people. And so that means I'm not going to be any different from my neighbor or from my coworker or from my family member that doesn't know Jesus. And what's interesting is that in order to be holy, you have to have the courage to stand out, but you also have to have the compassion to jump in. And you have to have this balance. There has to be contact without contamination. That's the balance we have to have. We have to have compassion, enough compassion to, 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 to jump in, but enough courage to stand out. And that's the balance we need. And I would argue that to the degree that we are holy, to that same degree, we will be a nation. See, a lot of people don't see us as a nation within a nation because we're not holy enough. We act just like them. So no one knows that you're a nation within a nation. No one's attracted to that nation because we don't act like a different nation. We act just like the nation that we live in. We buy the same things. We worry about the same stuff. We plan the same way. We date the same way, we spend the same way, we talk the same way. So to the degree that we are holy, to the degree that we are different, distinct, to that same degree, we are an effective nation. Now here's what's interesting about the word nation. And this actually was probably the word that most surprised me this week as I studied. 
The word nation, it doesn't, when we, th- when we think of nation, we think of a piece of land, it's so a geographical land, right? A piece of land that is governed by a certain president or prime minister or dictator. They have their own flag, they have their own government, they have their own laws. That's what we think of when we think of nation. But, but in the Greek, actually, the word nation, it means culture. It means culture. So here's why this is so important. When you come to know Jesus, Jesus gives you not a new geographical place to live in. He gives you a new culture, a new worldview, a new way to view the world. Actually, uh, Tim Keller does an awesome job explaining this. He says, there is a difference between a club and a culture. He says, you know how, have you ever met someone who's really passionate about bowling? Right? My parents used to be in a bowling league in Hanover Park, and it was super shady. Like, we, I remember, like, they would take us, and, and, and they were doing it through their company. And then my, my, my brother and I would sit there and do math homework, and I was so shocked by how passionate people were about bowling. Like, like this was like, it's like a culture, a subculture, right? And they had their, their, their uniforms and their shiny, uh, their, their shiny eight-pound or whatever the eight there mean balls. I don't know what the, the eight or the nine was. Maybe it was the size of the hole. I don't know, but... but they had their brand new shoes and like they would talk strategy and they would smoke cigarettes. You could smoke cigarettes but they're still back then. And like they would be like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do this on the next strike. I'm like, who cares, bro? <laughs> like, what are you doing with your life? It's Tuesday. Like, <laughs> like who cares if you get a strike here or not? Like, who cares? Right? It's this really weird subculture. That's what bowling is. Here's what's interesting. <laughs> Sorry, for those of you who like bowling, I apologize. But uh, so, but here's what's interesting. Though, so, what, Christi- what Keller says is that Christianity isn't a bowling league. It isn't a club. It isn't this, this seedy little subculture that no one else knows about, right? What he says is that Christianity is a culture. It's not a club. It's a culture. Here's why this is so important. Because a culture informs everything. A club only affects one part of your life. A culture affects every part of your life. So if you're part of the Hispanic culture or you're part of the African-American culture or you're part of the Asian culture, your culture changes how you talk. It has, it had, it has uh, implications on how you spend money. It, it has implications on how you view time. It has implications on how you view yourself, right? Your culture affects everything. It affects everything. And what he's saying is that when you come to know Jesus, Jesus isn't just a club. Christianity isn't a club that only affects one part of your life. Just like your, your, your heritage, your culture changes everything, that's what this culture does. Christianity shows up, and it has a say on every part of your life. How you spend your money, how you date, how you talk, how you view yourself, how you parent, how you're married. Every single part of your life changes if you are in Christianity, because it's a new culture that you are brought into. Okay? It's a brand new culture. So the way I would describe it for those of you who are tech nerds is this. A lot of times we view Christianity as an app on our phone. Oh, I, I downloaded Christianity, and, I, and, I, and every time I'm on church Sunday morning, I click on the app, and it's open for those two hours, and then I close the app, and I don't think of it the rest of the week. But Christianity is not just an app. Christianity is a brand new software, a brand new iOS. It's a, it's a brand new interface. See, on your, on your Apple iPhone, you have apps, and then you have the interface. The interface is what allows you to interact with everything on your phone. When you become a Christian, the iOS changes, the interface changes, the software changes, so now every single thing on your phone is affected by the, 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 new, the new software. The software touches everything on your phone. It's not just some individual app that you open up on Sunday. Does that make sense? Sorry for, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. If you're over the age of 60, you're like, what? Okay, but sorry. Um, that was for the millennials. Okay, so, all right. So we have a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and then the next one is God's special possession. Here's the last identity that we're given, God's special possession. And and I love this one because literally what the phrase special there means, it means to be God's prized possession. It means to be his treasured possession. Now think think about how beautiful that is. You know, some of, some of you might have a prized possession. Maybe it's something a, a grandparent gave you. Maybe it's an heirloom. Maybe it's a, a, a photo album. Maybe it's uh, some documents. Maybe it's, you know, or maybe it can be someone in your family. It could be a, a child or whatever. There's, everyone has in their life something that is completely irreplaceable, something that is totally irreplaceable. It is your treasured possession. It is your prized possession. According to this passage, think about how beautiful this is. 
the God of the universe, the one who's created mountains and galaxies and oceans and, and, and every planets, every single thing on this earth, every single thing in this universe, out of all the things that could be God's prized possessions, out of all the things that deserve to be God's prized possession above us, we are God's prized and treasured possession. That's crazy. And one of the ways you can tell how valuable something is is by looking at the price tag. You know how, how when maybe someone buys you something and you're like, oh, I don't know if I like that. And then you go to return it and then you look at the price, you're like, oh, dang, I got to keep this. I, I feel bad. I feel like I can't even give it back because of how expensive this is, right? One, the way you can tell how valuable something is is by seeing how much it costs. And you know that you're valuable and you know that you're God's special possession because in 1 Peter, in, in chapter 1, he says that we were not bought with perishable things like silver or gold, but we were bought with the imperishable blood of, the imperishable blood of Christ. And so you know we're valuable because our price tag is the blood of Jesus. But think about this. If you really believe, and when I say believe, I don't mean just up here, head knowledge. If you allow that, that knowledge, that information, that you are God's treasured possession to go from your head down to your heart, if you really allow that information to impact you, like salt that you marinate into meat, you take salt and you, you push it into the meat that, that you're trying to marinate. If you allow that truth to be pushed into you, it changes everything. If you know that you are God's treasured possession, that of all the things that God can treasure, you are his one irreplaceable possession, think about how that changes you in your marriage. Think about how that changes you at work. Think about how that changes you with, with your children, how that changes you in your singleness, how that changes you with, with, with how, you, how you interact with people on social media. If you really are God's treasured, prized possession, your self-worth goes through the roof. And now, instead of being selfish, you can be selfless. Now I can serve you with no strings attached because I don't need your affirmation because I already have God's affirmation. 90% of the good things we do is just to be applauded and to be recognized. And that's the good things we do. Oh, I serve in my church. Yeah, you serve because you want to get patted on the back many times. And you want to be noticed and you want to be seen as great and holy. But if, but if God actually sees you that way, then all of a sudden, you no longer have to do things for selfish reasons. You can now be selfless because your self-worth has gone through the roof. If you're in high school here today, you, don't, you no longer have to try to impress anybody. You no longer have to try to look cute or be acceptable. You don't, it doesn't matter anymore. You can be yourself. If you're in college, it, it doesn't matter what season of life you're in. It changes everything if you understand that you're God's prized possession. If you understand that you are that valuable to the God of the universe. Everything changes if you really understand that. Okay, so that was the answer to the first question. It was, what is our identity? And that's, like I said, we were gonna spend the most time there. The next two, we won't spend as much time in. What is our identity? He said that there's four identities. The second question that we're gonna ask and answer is what is our purpose? And what's interesting is he gives four answers to the first question. We get four identities, but we only get one purpose. There's four identities, but only one purpose. What is our purpose? Well, Let's go ahead and jump back into the passage. Look what he says in, verse, in the second half of verse 9. Let me just read verse 9 again. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special position, possession. And then he says what our purpose is. He says, That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what is our purpose? Right after the comma. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is our purpose. Now, here's why this is so important. I, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this. You see, because if we were to stop in the beginning of verse 9 with all of our wonderful identities, right, and that's what a lot of churches do. We, we come together and we affirm each other and we build each other up and we are God's chosen people and we're his holy nation. It's so beautiful. It's all about us. No, it's not. Listen, the purpose of the church is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So listen to this. I, I, I want you to really listen to this. The purpose of the church is not for its members before its non-members. The church doesn't exist for its members. I'm sorry for that. E I just sent the email out. I'm sorry if you just got that and that, that just shocked you. 
The church isn't here for you. A lot of church, a lot of people, they go to church to church. Oh, I think I like this church. The pastor is good. The music is good. Uh, oh, you know what? No, he said something that offended me. I'm going to go to the next church and see if they, if they make me feel better. Oh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go try this church. Listen, the church isn't for its members. The church exists for its non-members. The purpose of us being here is not for us here. It's for the people out there. That's what this is saying. The word there to declare, it's the only place in the entire New Testament that this word is used. The word there to declare, it means to proclaim. It means to celebrate someone. It means to advertise someone. That's what the word declare means. It means to proclaim, to celebrate, and to advertise. We as Christians, our job as the church, as individuals because of the Great Commission, but corporately as a church because of this passage, our job is to proclaim and to declare and to celebrate and to point others to the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is why we are here, people. That is why we exist. Listen, this week I was sitting with one of our elders and we were, and we were talking about there's, there's moments as a pastor where you sit down and, and, you, and, and you wrestle with things and you see things that are going on in your congregation. And I was telling him, if I can change one thing at Tri-Village Church is I would, my prayer, and I pray this all the time, that we here, the people who are here, would believe this. In light of that, he, he, he said something to me that I never even thought of. He's like, have you, have you told him that though? Now like, I don't know if I have. He said, well, don't be mad at them for something you haven't told them. Now I'm going to tell you. Listen to this. Listen to this. this is, I don't, you know I don't give any application. This is my one application for like the 2018. Okay? Here's what I want you to do. I want you, 2018, to choose one person that you're going to invest in and invite to church. One person. That's it. Not three people. Not 10 people. Not 11 people. One person... And there's only two things you can be doing with people outside the church. You're either investing in them through praying, through eating with them, through spending time with them. You're either investing, the two eyes, invest and invite. So you're either investing in them or you're inviting them. That's my homework for you. This so, so, so in three weeks, you're like, I wonder what Will wants me to be doing this year. The reason why we, we started the we're not done thing is because of this, is because I, I'm trying to move you out. We're not done, guys. We're not done. It's not even, we're not even close to it. We have so much work to do. We are not done declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into, wonder, into marvelous light, into wonderful light. We're not done with that. And so I, I want you, think about it, think about it. Our church is anywhere between 225 and 250 on a Sunday morning. If every person in our church decided to invest and invite one person, we would double in one year. And you're like, oh, it's not about numbers. Yes, it is about numbers. You know Why? You know why it's about numbers? Because we exist to proclaim the glories and the praises of the one who called us into wonderful light, from darkness to wonderful light. It is about numbers because each one of those numbers is a soul dying and going to hell. And if that's not why we're here, then let's just close this thing right now. Let's leave. We don't, we don't, we don't need another church. We don't need another Christian club. And so your homework this year, and I'm giving myself this same assignment, is to invest in one person, just one person, someone you're going to pray for, someone you're going to reach out to. Someone, and I don't care if you don't invite them until the last Sunday of this year, but your homework this year is to invest in one person and to invite one person. That's it. Because this is what we are about. And listen, 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 listen. If, if you're right now feeling like, oh, well, he has no right to tell me what to do, whatever. Listen, if that's you, you know what that means? that you do not get what God actually did for you then. Because he's saying that we need to declare the praises, and the word praises there, it, it, it's a, real, a, a weird word in Greek to translate, but it's the acts, the, 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 the deeds, the, the something that this individual has done. We are to declare, we are to advertise, we are to celebrate what God has done in general, but also in particular. So in general for the church and in particular for us. We are to celebrate that before other people. Listen, if you feel like, ah, no, 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 I'm too scared. No, 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 I'm too busy. No, I don't have time to invest in one person and invite one person, okay? If that's what you're thinking, then what that means is you really don't understand how dark the darkness was that God brought you into and how beautiful the light is that he, that, that he brought you out of and how beautiful the light is that he brought you into. You don't get it. 
And actually what that means is, is that you're being religious. Because here's what a religious person would say. When you go up to a religious person and you're like, hey, how are you doing in your faith? Here's how you, you, some of you are sitting right here and you're like, there's people in my life that I don't know if they're Christians or not. Well, let me tell you exactly how you can know. If you go up to someone and you say, hey, how are you doing in your spiritual walk? And their response is, you know what? I'm doing okay. I, I, I'm not that bad. You know, I, 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 I could do better, but I'm not that bad, but I'm trying. If someone tells you that, they're not a Christian. You know why? Because what they just described is gray. That's gray. That's the middle. That's gray. I'm not that bad, but I'm not that good. But a real Christian would say, I was living in darkness, and there's still so much darkness in me, and I am broken, and I am depraved, and I am a nobody, but praise be to God that he took me out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you ask someone about their faith and their response has nothing to do with darkness or with light, they don't know Jesus. Because when you actually know Jesus, you understand how terrible the darkness is, you understand how wonderful the light is, and you avoid the miserable gray in the middle. And so if you're sitting here and your Christianity is gray right now, you're not that bad, but it's okay because there's people that are worse, and you're not that good, but it's okay because you're trying your best. If that's what your faith is, then no wonder you're not declaring the glories of the one who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Because it's only once you understand the darkness that you start to declare the light. And so our job, our job, listen, is to proclaim and to declare and to celebrate the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And the one thing that's keeping us from it is the religious gray. Okay? So, first question is, what is our identity? If you could put the three questions back up. Second question is, what is our purpose? And then lastly, the third and final question that I want to look at this morning is what is our motivation? Listen, this, these identities are very hard to embrace. They're very hard to grasp. They are, really, they are very hard to wrestle down and make, a, make them true of us on a daily basis, right? And if that's not already hard enough, the purpose is even harder. And so the question is, how can, so if you're really following along, if you're tracking along with me, you're like, how in the world am I actually going to do this? Like, this is hard. This is really hard to really accept and embrace these identities and to really live out my purpose. How do I do it? Well, that's why the third question is, what is our motivation? What can possibly motivate us? What can possibly empower us to, 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 to grab onto this identity and to live out this purpose? Well, the answer to that question is found in verse 10. Look what, he, look what Peter says in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you're sitting here thinking, how in the world does that motivate me? How in the world does that verse motivate me to live out the identity that you just told me to live out and to, and to, and to embrace the purpose that you just told me to embrace? How in the world does this verse motivate me to do it? Well, here's how. Because what Peter is doing here, and, and, and you wouldn't notice this unless you were studying the passage, but what Peter's doing in verse 10 is he is quoting a book in the Old Testament. That he's actually, this, this is actually a direct, he, he's taking a verse from the Old Testament and he's repeating it here, okay? And you know what book he's, he's quoting here in this book, in, in this part? He is quoting the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea. And for those of you who don't know the book of Hosea, let me give you a background on the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, Hosea is a prophet that God has called to go and tell the Israelites how sinful and unfaithful and wicked they are, right? At the beginning of Hosea, he's crazy, God shows up to Hosea and says, listen, my people have been so unfaithful. This is a true story. My people have been so unfaithful. They have been so wicked. They have been so adulterous that here's what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go find a prostitute. I want you to marry her. And here's why I want you to marry her. Because as she cheats on you, I want your marriage, as you go out to preach to people, I want your marriage to be a physical representation of the spiritual relationship I have with my bride, Israel. He's, there's a woman named Gomer. She's a prostitute. She's been a prostitute her whole life. I want you to go marry her. And as you tell people they are unfaithful, I want your marriage to actually be a physical representation and manifestation of what you are preaching to the people. So as you stand up in front of the Israelites and you tell them they are sinful and you tell them they are wicked and you tell them they're unfaithful, I want them not only hear it, but I want them to see it because your wife is going to repeatedly cheat on you again and again and again and again. So God tells them ahead of time, you're going to marry this prostitute, Gomer, and she's going to cheat on you again and again and again and again. Okay? So Hosea, he goes out, he marries Gomer, they get married, 
And in chapter one, they have three children. They have a girl and two boys. The name of the girl, God says, I want you to name the girl not loved. You want to talk about complex issues for that girl for the rest of her life? Not loved. And then he says, I want you to name the boy not my people. Those are the two words he's talking about here. Okay? He's talking about not love, not my people. He's, he's, that's one of the verses that he's making reference to. Here's what's crazy. They have three children together, and I can see Hosea almost thinking, oh, wait, this is not that bad. She, she hasn't cheated on me yet. This is great. And what happens? At the end of chapter 1, she leaves him, she runs away from him, and starts sleeping with men all throughout the neighborhood. She goes right back into the life that she had before. After she had three children with him, okay, Starts, starts sleeping around the neighborhood, sleeping with other men. Now, here, here's, what's, here's what's beautiful about this. It's, it's crazy, but it's beautiful. Hosea has no idea where his wife went. All he knows is that she left him and that she's back into her life of prostitution. She, he has no idea where she, went, where she went. You know who informs him where she went? God does. God shows up and says, hey, hey, I want you to go, go get your wife. Where, where is she? She, she's sleeping around, and she, she, she's gone so far now that she's actually a slave now. She's a sex slave now, and she's the property of another man. I want you to go buy her back. And Hosea's like, what? After she abandoned me and my children, I want you to go buy her back. So he goes looking for her. And can you imagine the places that Hosea had to go in order to, the, the, the seedy, nasty, dirty, filthy places in the city that he had to go to in order to find his wife? And all the rumors that would have started, hey, hey, did you see the man of God? You know, Hosea, the, 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 the man of God, yeah, I saw him over here at this time. What was he doing there? What was he doing there? What's the man of God doing over there? He's looking for his wife. That's what he's doing. And then he finds her, and it says that she's, she's in slavery. So there's a good chance that he gets there, and she, he walks up as she is standing on the auction block. And she's standing there naked and bruised and exposed and dirty and filthy. And she's standing there, and she's already feeling totally exposed. And then all of a sudden, she sees her husband, and I could just see, imagine what she felt like. She was already exposed, already naked, and then she sees her husband. She has to divert her eyes because if she actually looks at him, she's going to feel that much more shame, that much more naked because she knows what she did to him. She abandoned him and their three children. She knows what he, she did. And so she, he shows up, and he walks up to the auction block where she's being sold, and she, he goes to open his mouth, and what she's expecting is for him to yell at her, for him to reject her, for him to spit on her, for him to laugh at her. And you know what he says? He points her out out of all the slaves that are up there and says, I want her. I want her. And the guy's like, wait, 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 wait. And everyone knows that's his wife. Wait, wait, you want her? You want her back? I want her back. She belongs to me. He goes up to go get her, and the merchant's like, no, 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 no. I don't care who she is to you. She's my property. You have to pay. He's like, but she's my wife. I don't care. But, but she belongs to me. I don't care. I don't care. Pay. In the passage, it says he pays 15 shekels and, 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 some, and some wheat in order to buy his own wife back. And think about it, think about it, think about it. Think about what, what so Jose uh, um, Gomer is already shocked that he says, I want her. But then when she finds out that they're making him pay, she's like, okay, well, he's definitely not going to do that. He's gone. There's no way he's going to pay for me to come back. And you know what Hosea says? Hosea says, how much? How much? That's my wife. How much? I'll pay anything. How much? She's mine. She belongs to me. How much? He pays for her, and I, I could just see her being unshackled, walking with him, him grabbing his robe and putting it over her, and them going home together. You know, a lot of people don't ever talk about this part, but you never hear about, Jose, about Gomer ever cheating again after that. Because when you actually experience God's grace, when you actually experience unconditional love and favor and mercy in your lowest moment, it changes you. It's the, it's the ultimate motivation. And listen, as beautiful as that story is, the only reason why that story is even a decent story for us to talk about, the only reason why that story even means anything is because that story points us to a greater story. That Hosea points us to a greater Hosea. That Gomer points us to a greater Gomer. The greater Hosea is Jesus and the greater prostitute is us. 
And Jesus, you think, you think it was hard for Hosea to go look for, for Gomer and all these seedy, nasty, filthy places? Jesus left perfect heaven in order to come to sinful earth. And he went to all these nasty, seedy, horrible places in order to find us. He finds us and we're shackled and we're naked and we're exposed and we're filthy. And we're standing there and we see him and we're expecting for him to reject us. We're expecting for him to say, no, 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 I don't want that one back. And what Jesus says is, I want her I want him because they belong to me. And just like in the story of Narnia, when, when the, the lion goes in to talk to the white, the white witch, she says, he says, what do I got to do? She's like, you, you, someone has to pay. And you know what Jesus says? How much? How much do I got to pay? Because I need my people back. How much? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't pay shekels. Like we said in, 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 in Peter chapter 1, he didn't pay with imperishable things like silver and gold. He paid with his precious blood. He, he says, how much? And they said his blood, and he said, done. What? Listen, if, if that doesn't motivate you, if that doesn't motivate you, then, then what will? What can possibly motivate us if it's not that? See, what's crazy about the list, if you go back to verse 9, none of those things describe us in verse 9. We are not a chosen people. We are not a royal priesthood. We are not a holy nation. We are not God's special possession. But the reason why we get to be is because at the cross, the chosen one was rejected. At the cross, the king was brought low. At the cross, the priest was kicked out of God's presence. At the cross, the holy one was made a sin offering. And at the cross, God's special possession was rejected and sold off. The reason why those things are true of us is because at the cross they became untrue of Jesus so that by faith in him they might become true of us. When you understand that, when you get that, it's then and only then that it becomes a wonderful light. It's only then that we become, it becomes something that we are in awe of. That's why later on, earlier in the passage that we read, he says that those who believe see Jesus as precious. Listen, the only way Jesus will become precious to you is if you understand how precious you were to him. To the degree that you see how precious you are to Jesus, to that same degree, he will be precious to you. That is the ultimate motivation. The only way that we're going to embrace our identity and live out our purpose is if this is our motivation. Amen? Let's pray.